and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today, we will be answering the bloody stupid question, how does behaviorism help players catch them all in Pokemon Go? To answer that question, we have two of us. We have me, Mike Collins, imposter syndrome incarnate, and a man with a whole, with a tent bag full of microphones. And I'm joined by... Rebecca Ferguson. And I am, I think I decided my tagline was Innovator of Pedagogies last time I was on. That's a pretty good one. Uh, because we were talking about the Innovating Pedagogy Report to some extent. Uh, but I'm also a person with a PhD uh, and I know a bit about education. You see, that you'll, you'll notice that we've got no Mark Charles with us today and that's because people with PhDs in education are, are interchangeable. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> take one away, put one in. Hot swap. Okay, let's just dive into it then. Uh, in the first part of the show, where we break down the two components of our question. Part one, the question. Okay, so how does behaviorism help players catch them all in Pokemon Go? So, uh, behaviorism and Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go first? I think we should start with Pokemon Go because Absolutely. Pokemon Go is much more fun. Do we need to explain what Pokemon is in case people have been living under rocks? Uh, well, there probably are people out there who are living under rocks. Maybe. I mean, Pokemon um, was originally a 1994, 95? 96. 96. 96. A fantastic uh, Game Boy game. Uh, 150 Pokemon. You had to catch them all. It was a little, uh, fantastic little adventure where uh, you as a child, as a 10-year-old, are turfed out of your home uh, and not allowed to return by your parents. You meet a, a crazy old doctor who sends you on a quest across all the, the islands in the Kanto region to um, battle and collect tiny monsters uh, with an aim of, I was going to say beating the Justice League. It's not the Justice League, is it? It's Team Rocket. There's team, team Rocket are the baddies. And then there's... Team Rocket are the baddies, and then you want to um, be the champion of the uh, Pokemon League. Yes, it's, it's yes the, the Pokemon League. There's like something, was it some, the Pokemon League Hall of Fame or something? That sounds, that sounds right. I never played the early versions. Oh, so. I mean, I had Pokemon Red. Because Charmander was my my starter Pokemon. Oh, that's a lovely Pokemon. It was my favourite. Who, who would be your starter? I I wanted Charmander to be my starter Pokemon, but there wasn't a Charmander around when I started. So I think I started with Bulbasaur, who I was never very impressed by. He's very cute, though. Yeah, yeah. No, Char Charmander would have been my my starter Pokemon if I if I could have chosen. From their so, original 150. But yeah, so a, a large sort of a multimedia franchise um, that it grew into. So there's been cartoons, many, many, many video games. Films. Films. Uh, music. Music. Yeah. Well, I think the soundtrack for the films. Uh, so I think you could buy those soundtracks oh, if you were that. really keen to do so. Oh. And there have been many films, haven't there? Yeah. And, um, and clothing and soft toys and... Um, my daughter was always very into Pokemon, and so our house is full of Pokemon-y things. So I can tell you there are Pokemon bed sheets, there are Pokemon bath towels, <laughs> uh, there are little Pokemon that will talk to you. So literally anything you could conceivably stick Pikachu on has Pikachu on. Yes. It's like the Rule 34, but I guess... So I, th I think we should just say that Pikachu is probably the Pokemon that most people will associate with the game. Yeah. Um, it's an electric Pokemon, very friendly, sits on your shoulder, says Pika Pika. Yeah, a little electric hamster thing. Yeah. Very cute. Very, very cute little red sheep. And it is one of the biggest video game franchises of all time. I think it's beaten by Mario and Tetris, but apart from that, it's just everywhere. And it has been everywhere for a quarter of a century now, which mm. is uh, pretty astonishing. Isn't it doesn't, it? Oh God, I feel old thinking about that. <laughs> Yeah, so that's really what Pokemon is. Oh, and, and the trading cards game. Oh, yes, I, I I still have a big stack of those. Yeah. Like, that's still a big scene, bizarrely. That is a big scene, yeah. We've got a lot of those in our house as well. And, you you know, some of them are worth loads and loads mm. of money if you've got a hologram. And I, I have a shiny Charizard from the oh. first set. Wow. Somewhere in my house, and it's driving me crazy trying to find it because I want us to get on eBay yeah. <laughs> to buy more microphones. That is like having Bitcoin locked away on a memory stick. Isn't yeah, it? well, it's like that guy who's forever going through landfill trying to find the Bitcoin. Have you heard about this? The guy who's spent like three years going through a landfill site trying to find the hard drive he threw away with like 500 Bitcoin on it. Well, there's another guy who's got a lot of Bitcoin on a memory stick. He's got the memory stick, but he did it on an ultra secure memory stick. Oh, no. And he gets three, three, Chances at the password, and he's had two goes. 
Andy can't remember what oh, oh, I feel stressed out on his behalf. That's... <laughs> I know when I heard that story. <laughs> How can you do that? But yeah, apparently there are 34 billion trading cards out there. Good God. I looked that up on Wikipedia That's the really other day. Good. Oh, I like that. <laughs> that means like everybody on earth could have a booster pack pretty much. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Or just people with attics full of them. Yeah. Probably like your house. <laughs> a little bit like mine. <laughs> so Pokemon Go is a game by Niantic, um, which came out, let's see, it was really big about five, six years ago. It was the augmented reality version of Pokemon. So um, it took you from having to play it on the Game Boy or the, or the DS or the Switch, and now you can play it on your phone and you could play it out in the wild I, th- I think it was the real sort of breakthrough point for augmented reality because up till then people had, you know, it was a sort of obscure interest of people uh, that you could overlay things onto day-to-day reality. And then suddenly everybody was mm. out there overlaying little Pokemon onto their day-to-day reality, staring through their phones at, at what was going on. Yeah, I mean, here on campus at the OU, you'd see um, big clusters of people yeah. going for very picturesque walks, uh, walks, but with their heads very much buried in their phones and stopping in weird clusters, which you'd later discover was where a particular something or other was spawning or there was a gym there uh, where people could battle. Yeah. And I, I mean, I used to absolutely love it because you could recognise it from a mile away because it would be people you're like, oh, I don't normally see you outside, mm. outside having a lovely walk in yes. a cluster with their phones. And uh, it used to puzzle people, especially I think around the library. Uh, because there were, there's, I think, three gyms around the library. Mm. So everybody would head for the library at the same time. I think most of the people there were going, oh, I'm just going to nip out for a coffee <laughs> <laughs> and I'll catch a Pokemon while I'm doing it. I'll catch Pokemon. But also there was that weird kind of area control competitiveness mm. of having your faction or your bit owning or your like group being in control of the gym because you could actively you could send the pokemon that you collect you could then send out to fight in a brutal blood sport uh to uh protect the uh the gym and you got points and things for owning the gym but also the best thing about owning a gym was that there was a big thing saying i own this gym Mm. in a really kind of wonderfully connected this bit of the world is mine have at yes yes and there were certainly people on campus who would suddenly get control of all the gyms. Yes. Wherever you went, it was the same person. Mm. And you're like, I wonder why this team hasn't done anything <laughs> recently. And you're like, oh, that's why. <laughs> yeah, and that all died down a bit um, over COVID. But I yeah. think it's coming back again now. Yeah, I've noticed it. I saw a gaggle of people out when I was at um, Broughton Brook um, last week, and there was a gaggle of people out. And I thought, oh, they're Pokemon going. And it gave me a like, weird little glow of nostalgia. Yeah, because... Something that's weird is is when Pokemon Go first came out, it was terribly exciting and mm. you know, so many people signed up worldwide. And then, of course, there was there were all the news art items about, oh, nobody's interested anymore. It's all died down. It's lost lots of people. But actually, if you look at it, it's, it's still huge. And yeah. you go to a, a Pokemon gym and there are Pokemon gyms all over the place. Um, and they change hands several times a day, so mm. you can see that there's lots of people. Um, in fact, I think I think uh, Pokemon Go made something like nine hundred million dollars last year. It's it's just insanely it's successful, frightening, yeah, over, over such a long period of time as well. Yeah, I, I, weirdly, actually, this conversation is making me want to reinstall it on my phone. I, I think the other thing is that the Pokemon Go franchise then began to move the Pokemon franchise forward mm. because they had to think about. Well, there are all these people engaging, you know, multiple times a day. You can be playing it whenever you're moving around. Yeah. Some people are playing it at their desks at work. So there's always got to be new things. Um, so you said 150 Pokemon. And of 151. Course, well, yeah, there were 151 at the beginning, but now there's over 900. And uh, it's not just there are over 900. Um, each one of those, they might be a shiny one. They might be a lucky one. They might be a, a poisoned one. They might be a purified one. They might have a funny little hat on. So every Pokemon, you can just keep collecting and keep collecting. I suppose there were two aims to Pokemon. You were either going to uh, win the league and you were going to be the best at battling uh, other Pokemon, or you were going to catch them all, which is, of course, the slogan and yeah. part of our title indeed and and part of a fantastic theme tune mm. as well gotta catch them all gotta catch them all pokemon yeah, which I, I might stick in the episode and just 
pray that we didn't get a takedown request because it's just it's so catchy. Um, if you work for Nintendo on the Antec, don't sue us, um, please. Along with along with you'll have to join the line with I think Warner Brothers and yeah, possibly J.K. Rowling. Yes, and all all the other things which we yeah. mentioned and slightly changed their names. <laughs> um, before we move on to behaviorism, mm. what's your favorite Pokemon? It definitely used to be Jigglypuff. Oh, that's a good one. Why? Why Jigglypuff? Uh, because Jigglypuff sings a little song and sends you to sleep uh, and then draws pictures on your face. <laughs> <laughs> and that always amused me. No that's end. really good. Actually, the older I get, the more Jigglypuff appeals, just something that could sing me to sleep. Mm. Just be like, oh, time for a solid eight hours. Oh, lovely. That would <laughs> yeah. be yeah, that would be incredible. Uh, it just lulls you and it's just lovely. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. See, for me, it would have to be um, Cubone, weirdly. Oh, my Cubone. Yeah, a little really, well, very cute little sort of marsupial thing. But yeah. where's uh, the skull of its dead mother? Yes. Which for a for a kid's game always struck me as unbelievably bleak. And it's not really until you read the description of it that you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. That or Doug Trio, because there's some wonderful fan art of what's happening under the ground with Doug Trios where they're just incredibly <laughs> muscly. And it really tickles me. It really, really tickles me. But I thought also, before we went into behaviourism, I found two pieces of research about Pokemon, which I thought lead us into. Oh, my God. Oh, that's, that's why I like Rebecca on the show. She comes prepared. I just Basically, I, just, I sit here along for the ride. I'm just in, I guess just enjoy myself and learn something. Go on, give me, give me, give me. So there's a professor of education over in America who does a lot of um, ethnographic studies, which is sort of looking at how um, communities work and things like that. And he reckoned that the thing that keeps people with Pokemon, or certainly that keeps kids with Pokemon, is that you've got these very long lists of Pokemon that you've got to learn. They've got all these attributes. You've got a very rich um, fictional universe, mm. which is one of the things that Mark would be talking about if he were here, because he's very into rich fictional universes, so that Kids can learn these things and then they can show off to their peer group about their knowledge of these things. And so I think that's something that takes us nicely into behaviorism. Mm. And the other thing is um, that there's been a study at Stanford uh, where they do uh, MRI scans of the brains of people who are very good at playing Pokemon, people who haven't really played Pokemon at all. And they've discovered there's certain bits of the brain that light up when when the experts recognise Pokemon. So it has changed their brain. And it's not the bit which lights up when they recognise the word. It's not the bit which lights up when they recognise the place. It is a specific, here is your Pokemon in your brain. That's 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 wonderful. That's so wonderful. Tiny bit scary, but mostly wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's somewhere between scary and wonderful. I'm not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, like... Just like, oh, wow, neuroplasticity in action. Mm. And also, oh, God, what have I done to my brain? Because I'm just, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, I could probably give you the the attributes and most of the attacks for most of the starting 150 and then most Warhammer 40,000 fourth edition mm. character traits, which probably means that there's a bit of my brain that's dedicated to that, which should be doing useful things. Yeah, and it just knows all that stuff inside out. Bugger. But then I would say, I mean, uh, one of my relatives was very into Pokemon very early on. And uh, she she was learning all these things about uh, about these little creatures. She went on to become a vet. <laughs> you know, it, it, and she definitely says, you know, this is one of the things that took me towards being a vet hmm. was I really enjoyed learning about Pokemon. What's well, really sweet. Hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm now thinking about the grim things you have to do as a Pokemon vet. Hmm. But... Well, one of the things about Pokemon also is, although they're battling all the time, they only faint. They don't die. Mm. Nothing dies in Pokemon. Um, so it's it's not quite that bleak. Not quite. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how Cubone's mother died. You yeah. Know, that's, that's spooky. Happiness. Yeah, probably. Passed happiness. away from too much happiness. <laughs> Fainted away from too much happiness and then... Yeah. Decayed. Um, okay, so let's move on to behaviorism before we go down that dark and <laughs> dark and dingy path. So behaviorism, I, I guess, so this is going to be really interesting for me because I've got kind of an idea in my head about behaviorism, which mm -hmm. I've definitely been using throughout the podcast. Um, and a little joke that I've internalized, which is that when I say behavior, you say ism, behavior, ism, behavior, ism, which <laughs> makes me smile because, <laughs> you know, it, that would be classic behaviorism. Yeah. But so in my head, behaviorism is essentially um, 
by you know by rote almost teaching a person what you well what you teaching a person what you want to learn it's like well teaching a person how you want them to respond to a stimulus so for example two plus two what does two plus two equal four not necessarily the why but when i say two plus two equals you say four uh, and kind of extrapolating that outwards so knowing kind of okay i'm going to give you all of king henry the eighth's wives uh, and then you'll tell them back to my, the way i've always interpreted it has been as a potentially sort of didactic way of teaching um in that i'm going to give you some information your task is to retain that information and then to regurgitate said as required now that's the way i've been interpreting it in my head however that might not be correct or the whole truth so it dissuade me on well, i think that's certainly a lot of the truth yeah. and when we started thinking about this episode i thought i'll go and look up behaviorism because i i I think one of the things that you tend to do as an educator is you teach people, oh, well, there was behaviourism and here's a sentence or two about that. And then there was cognitivism and here's a couple of sentences. Oh, and here's constructivism. And we're quite interested in constructivism these days. Let's talk about that quite a lot. And behaviourism tends to get swept up as, you know, something from the past. Lower teaching. Lower teaching, you know, the wrong teaching, uh, which... To some extent it is, but then to some extent any method of teaching is the wrong method. <laughs> so I, I think it's worth thinking about what it really means. Um, one of the things that uh, you get out of behaviourism is a definition of learning. Hmm. Because, of course, when we talk about learning, we usually don't particularly define our terms. And one of the things academics love is defining terms. <laughs> what is it we are actually talking about? Um, so if you said to a behaviourist, what is learning? They would say it's a long-term change in behaviour based on experience. I'm glad it's that because in my head I was saying, what is learning? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to throw you off your game there? But I'm just like, what is learning? Baby, don't. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, that's, I mean, a, that's a good definition though. That's a useful definition. Yeah. Uh, but it excludes some sorts of learning, obviously, mm. because some of our forms of learning aren't really to do with long-term changes in behaviour, are they? You know, you could know something in your head without without expressing it in your behaviour in any way. Mm. Uh, but the behaviourists, they emerged probably at the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century. And that was, of course, at the time when psychoanalysis was becoming big. And... The behaviourist was quite sceptical about that. And they said, we don't know what's going on in people's heads. It's no good coming up with a theory about something we can't see, something we can't observe. We can't do any science around that. And of course, they didn't have MRI scans then. Mm. So it was all a self-account. So they said, what we need to be looking at is things that we can do experiments with, things that we can observe. We can observe behaviour. Mm -hmm. So that is the thing that we ought to be looking at. How do we know if somebody's learned something? Well, they will change their behaviour. Mm -hmm. So it was all very logical. Yeah, it's a scientific approach of it making yeah. it measurable. Yeah. And at around that time, uh, there'd also been the work of Pavlov, who had famously working with the dogs. I was going. I was going to mention Pavlov. You were going to mention. Pavlov. <laughs> Would you like to talk about Pavlov? Oh, I mean, you're probably familiar with it, but uh, essentially, he, I believe, he trained um, a series of dogs to. Um, expect their dinner when he rang a bell so he could um uh ringing the bell give them their dinner ringing the bell give them their dinner ringing the bell give them their dinner and then he got to the point where he could ring the bell and they would come running because they were expecting their dinner i think that's the and more than coming running they would salivate mm. so there would be um if you give a dog meat it will salivate that's an unconditioned response that's what it does naturally and he brought them to the extent of a conditioned response that you'd ring a bell and they would salivate. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that they were consciously thinking, oh, must salivate. They just did that sort mm. of thing. And, um, yeah, I've I've been watching little YouTube videos about Pavlov recently, and a lot of them are, oh, he had these pet dogs and he trained them like this. And it's like, mm, he was a wait, bit wait, more dodgy. Yeah, there. I was going to say, wasn't there some stuff with like electroshocks or something as well in there? There usually is with that era. And surgery oh, and, and, and working with uh, dogs that people had brought in saying, I found this dog. Oh, strange. It has a collar on it. Um, oh, so, like so, a Birkenhair style. <laughs> yeah. So it, it wasn't all 
lovely, but a uh, very famous experiment, uh, very influential that you could you could induce those responses. So people were interested in these conditioned responses, and that's one of the things that began to feed into behaviourism. So, yeah, that's that's what you call uh, classical conditioning. Mm-hmm. And behaviourism moved it on to operant conditioning. What's operant mean? So I don't know. I was looking this up. I was trying to work out why it's called operant conditioning. Uh, Mike is now Googling. I'm Googling it. <laughs> He's Googling the word operant to see why it is used in operant conditioning. Oh, here we go. Operant. Oh, <laughs> you, you're going to laugh, but it's um, uh, it's a soft drink. Oh, no, it's uh, not. Um, it's a uh, soft drink. No. <laughs> so operant. Here we go. Uh, in psychology, adjective uh, involving the modification of behaviour by the reinforcing or inhibiting effect of its own consequences. So that makes sense. Right. OK. So operant conditioning would be cheese, cheese in box or electric shock in box if you're a mouse. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, if I go in this box, I get a shock. If I go in this box, I get cheese. So that would be operant conditioning. But it's, it's sort of, they're, they're linked together so close mm. that it's very difficult to unpick them, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. Yeah. So there were, there were lots of people who were into investigating behaviour in this way, uh, investigating learning in this way. Uh, so there was somebody called Thorndike. He was also doing animal experiments. In fact, most people were doing animal experiments. That's what that's what you were doing. It was a doing. crazy time. It was the thing to be doing. Those times. Um, so he came up with a couple of laws. He said there's a law of effect, and the law of effect is that consequences are necessary for learning. And hmm. he also said there's the law of exercise, that a learned behaviour fades without practice. Now, I think those things give away that he was doing these experiments with animals because, you know, consequences are necessary for learning. You can see that, for example, if you're training a dog. Hmm. If you're teaching a human, there's so many other variables going on um, that I'm not sure that extrapolates brilliantly to humans. I don't know. I feel that you could use different types of consequences Hmm. in that example, though, because I suppose with, if you're, you know, some ancient psychologists doing um, experiments on animals, then mm. the, the things that you can do to the animals are probably quite limited and quite physical and food-related or pain-related, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, nice strokes on the bum or whatever, which never seems to make it into these studies ever. <laughs> we gave him a good pat on the bum and he was very happy. Um, whereas, you know, I guess with people, the range of things you can do, things like uh, approval, mm. actually kind of like social approval so or you know, social uh, ratification. Uh, can be a, a positive thing, can be a, a way to to um, reward or, or punish, or there can be a set of consequences based on actions. So if you do this thing, you will get a positive social response. If you do a negative thing, you'll get a negative social response. So I suppose the, the range that you can do with people is probably broader than animals. And their reactions to it, because mm. what you think of as a positive social response, they might find negative and people are weird that way. <laughs> yes. You know, you might think being hit is not a good thing and some other people might find it a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, you weirdos. <laughs> I mean, the, statistically, at least some of you listen to this podcast. So yeah. just want to let you know that you do you. Don't do it while listening to this podcast, please. It'll put me off my stroke. <laughs> we weren't really expecting to go in that direction, were we? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, they were thinking about learning in terms of behaviour instead of in terms of what's going on inside your head. Um, And they were saying the sources of behaviour are external. So if you think about the classic nature versus nurture debate, behaviour has sort of come down very heavily on the side of nurture. Mm. And in fact, um, there was one behaviourist who said, you know, if you give me a child, uh, I can make this child into... A philosopher, I can make this child into a beggar. I can make this child into a you know, railway driver. I can, I can do anything with this child mm. um, just by by giving them the correct sort of stimulus. And I think that's that's a bit of a dodgy claim. Yeah, I think you'd struggle with that. I think any of us who have children uh, would say <laughs> you just can't do that with children. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Um, but it's a systematic approach to understanding animals. It's a systematic approach to understanding humans. And uh, it's trying to be objective about psychology. Mm. It's it's saying, you know, if this if we do X, then Y will happen. So there's all sorts of good scientific reasons why you you'd want to go down those routes. Mm. I think. 
And the classic thing that you come to, we started talking about operant conditioning and then we wandered off on leather chaps. <laughs> Which I suppose I'll have to leave in now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so operant conditioning, uh, I think we probably think of this in terms of the carrot and the stick, perhaps, yeah. um, is saying uh, you either reinforce the behaviour that you want or you punish a behaviour that you don't want. Um, so, for example, if you were training your dog, uh, you might say you might give it a doggy treat and that would be some positive reinforcement. Mm. Or if it's done something you like, you might take off its lead. So that'd be removing something that it doesn't like. And in both cases, you're reinforcing the behaviour. Or you might say, mm, I really don't like you doing that and give it a whack on the nose. So then you're adding something negative. That's that's a positive um, punishment. Or a negative punishment might be um, that you remove something pleasant. So it had some doggy treats. You take the doggy treats away. Hmm. Poor dog. <laughs> and I suppose the, the constructivist argument in this is that it's building connections. It's building schema between the behaviour and the... Um, and the response—it's is he going to confuse things? Building the association. Well, yes, I, I suppose. I suppose I'm. I'm. I, this is the problem that behaviorists would have in that I'm mm. interpreting something that you can't see or measure mm. behind that and going, ah, oh, this story makes sense. But of course, this isn't an observable behavior. What we're talking about is behaviorism, which is observable behaviors. Mm. And I think also this is the thing that because you did this with rats, you did this with pigeons. There's not necessarily the idea of a schema behind it. You know, if you teach a pigeon to peck, peck at a lever, um, you're not assuming that that pigeon has some mind map behind it. You're just thinking, if I do this to a pigeon, then the pigeon will do this. Yeah. Um, so, so again, I think there's that leap from animals to humans and thinking, well, and humans are a sort of animals, so obviously the same things should apply. And hmm. um, Perhaps they do. Perhaps they don't. Well, I have, I have a, I have a theory on this when it comes to where behaviour, where I see behaviourism successfully used in education. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm conscious that you're probably still kind of working your way through a point, so I'll return to that in a minute. But we could do it there. Well, okay. Well, just so I'm thinking about where I, where you see behaviourism mostly. I sort of said earlier about things like the call and response for things like multiplication and stuff like that. I learned my multiplication tables by rote and I subsequently do all maths based off that since. And mm -hmm. same with the, you know, the scattering of French that I have and various other bits and pieces. A lot of teaching when you're very young is, I would say, behavioristic in its approach because it's call and response to a, to a large degree. But I think that's actually all right because I think to a degree you're teaching children like they're little animals mm. i think people kind of are little animals um and they become less animalistic as they grow up but they're very yeah i think just the way that um obviously you know when we when uh, humans are born we are unusually for mammals born not very well formed you know a giraffe mm. can get up and giraffe pretty quickly after mm. it's been born uh, and you know it's got like a 20 foot drop uh down to the floor yeah. horses and mini horses uh when they come out whereas you know babies are this sort of lump of flesh which needs constant care and is unbelievably plastic it's still yes. growing and developing for the first couple of years of its life so when it's sort of learning during that phase it's so malleable and so plastic and you know still developing i suppose i don't want to say sentience but it's developing developing its its id its personality during that point i think treating people like tiny animals during that point probably is the good thing i think i, I you wouldn't for example do a piece of problem-based learning uh with uh, a four-year-old uh, for teaching them how to do their four times table or something. I think. No, no, that would be. That would be. I mean, that would, for starters, <laughs> be a terrible piece of problem-based learning. But <laughs> yes, getting them to work out the four times table from first principles. Would yeah, be hellish, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, actually, to be honest with you, if you told me work out the four times table from first principles of mathematics, I think I would struggle as a thirty-five-year-old. <laughs> but um, yeah. but yeah, so I, so I guess yeah, teach. So I yeah. Teaching children like little animals, mm. I think, is where behaviorism really works. And I think it's really good for a lot of that foundational knowledge, not the stuff that you kind of build and interpret yourself, but the bits where you need kind of the essential blocks in order to start. Mm. I think that's where it works. I think that's why so much education builds on previous education, because, you know, um, you and I having uh, this discussion, for example, is predicated on us having both learned how to speak the English language much earlier on and kind of grasping 
quite complicated vocabulary and the underlying meanings in that, much of which we will have the, the equipment for which we will have learned by rote. And we're then unpacking that metacognitive toolkit in order to have this conversation. So sort of language being built upon that kind of initial behavioristic uh, imprinting. Although saying that language yeah. is slightly different because people learn language in interesting ways. Now, the weird thing when you talk about language, actually, is uh, behaviorism has been very influential on language learning mm. uh, because the behaviorists uh, were very much in favor of, um, you know, drill, response, repeat. Um, and I think there's a slight difference between rote learning and behaviorism because you, you've got to think there is the condition, there is there is always the response. Mm. So it's not just that you learn four fours of 16. It's that when you you said four fours of 16, you got some positive feedback. Mm. And when you said four fours are 18, you possibly got some negative feedback. Yeah. If you were just doing that blankly with no response, that wouldn't be behaviourism mm. because, you know, you, you wouldn't have those... Uh, you wouldn't have the influence and then the the reaction. Yeah, but yes, uh, it was very influential on language learning, and in fact, it's probably why uh, language learning in the UK and the US has always been so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, because because uh, particularly in the nineteen sixties, uh, it was something that got into language classrooms that it was about. Um, being able to repeat things. Mm. It was about being able to pronounce things. I don't know how your French lessons went, but we had a lot of time in language labs, which were just écouter et répéter. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily understand this. Mm. It was just, can you repeat it back? When I say je m'appelle, you say Mike, je m'appelle Mike, je yeah. m'appelle Mike. Yes. And uh, so not very much about the meaning mm. at all not very much about the being able to use it in realistic situations. And I, we still see that to some extent. Uh, if you think about Duolingo, uh, which is a language learning app, you can learn multiple foreign languages in it. But there is a big chunk of that, which is learn these words. And then you'll get some experience points for learning these words, <laughs> learn these words. And then you'll be in a competition with some other people and you might win the competition. See our episode on gamification and game-based learning for exactly. other reasons why that's not, <laughs> not great. Yeah, so quite a chunk of gamification, I think, is, is about behaviourism. It's about saying learning is quite boring intrinsically, and so we have to liven it up by giving you little rewards all the time, hmm. um, rather than saying learning is a fascinating, exciting thing to do, unless we've made it very boring. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't even considered the extrinsic reward aspect mm. of behaviorism before because as again see back to our episode on gamification games based learning there is this thing about extrinsic rewards and motivators can actually kind of interfere with intrinsic motives like intrinsic motivation is significantly better as a motivator than extrinsic mm -hmm. um but where extrinsic is there it can weirdly lead to sort of negative effects and people de-intrinsicifying i don't know if that's a word but <laughs> you uh, made that word up yeah um there'll be another google later on um edit a better word in later but yeah do you know the, 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 do, you, do you get where i'm coming from yeah in, yeah definitely that we were going in interesting direction there let's let's just get back to skinner a little bit because uh, Skinner was very much the operant conditioning sort of person. And he was also into this idea of a learning machine in that uh, he created machines. They, they were sort of boxes, wooden boxes. Um, they would give you something to learn, something to respond to. If you responded correctly, you'd immediately get the feedback. Yes, that's right. And then you'd be able to move on to the next thing. Hmm. So you could, uh, you could work on learning at your own speed it was personalised because if you didn't understand something, you'd go back to that thing. Um, and it was supposed to be very motivating because you were getting this immediate feedback and you could connect the feedback with what you'd done. Yeah. So it wasn't that you had to fill in a worksheet and the teacher would give it you about three days time and you'd forgotten all about it. You were immediately getting the feedback. And I think teaching machines is something that we also see being carried forward hmm. so if you've ever had uh, a quiz a, a quiz or uh, I, i've been in school classrooms where they've had little toys where it, it'll say something like what is the capital of france 
And if you type in Paris, then it'll go, yes, ping. And, you know, kids, kids will sit and play with these things for quite a long time before they get bored with them. <laughs> so there's that. And there's also something called um, Learner Models, which is, is about trying to automate learning, trying to personalise learning. There's been a lot of work on that over decades of trying to get machines which can carry the teaching machine a little bit further by keeping giving you res responses and helping you to build up a subject uh, layer upon layer, mm. which works quite well with it. It can work with um, a very highly structured subject like maths or physics where you need to know the building blocks and then once you've got the building blocks you can put the next layer in place yeah. and the next player in a softer subject where you know you're going in all directions at once it's very difficult to build that into a teaching mm. machine um so if you take a teaching machine approach it's, it's quite likely to push you towards teaching certain subjects or teaching certain aspects of mm. subjects um so yeah there's a lot of work in in that direction which we see going on. And I think that takes us back to your point that although behaviourism tends to be something we say, oh, behaviourism, that's, that's old-fashioned, we don't do that. In fact, behaviourism is all over the place hmm. and it's quite hard-baked into our classrooms. Yeah. So the whole idea of assessment, of marks, of certificates, that's all behaviourism, really. Um, it's... Here is here is some motivator at the end, some sort of positive feedback or some negative that you want to avoid, and it's making you learn things. That's uh, see, the thing that really tickles me with that is that you could have a very kind of hip and trendy sort of, oh yeah, actually we're a totally uh, social constructivist sort of um, class of this thing. Yeah, it's all good. And there's a big exam at the end. Um, and then, yeah, you'll get the certificate if you pass it at the end. It's like, haha, it was actually meta behaviorism all along. <laughs> like, whips off the bat and the mask. Ah, it yeah. was me. Twirls its mustache and then runs away. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's really interesting that it's actually so, I guess, because it's, I mean, it's a bit trendy, isn't it? And a kind of um, unfashionable. Well, it's, it's trendy to be like, ha, behaviorism, who on you? We're doing cool things with VR and social stuff and communities of practice. Um, and it's a bit unsexy to be like, yeah, we do a bit of teaching by right. If you say a thing and we repeat it back, we'll give you a sweep. Yeah. You know, it's a bit unsexy. But at the same time, I guess it's all as valid a tool in the toolbox, uh, particularly for certain types of, as you say, kind of that foundational knowledge, the building block stuff, as, as anything else. Yeah. Sometimes I mean, it will be the right way it, of teaching. It's things. certainly worth knowing that in lots of circumstances, it does work. Hmm. You, you know, we all like to get a positive thing. We all like to avoid negative things. So if you identify those, then you can get people to do the connector. I think sometimes it can push you in the wrong direction. So, for example, if you are learning a subject just to get the marks at the end, just to get the certificate, so you're seeing the stimulus as filling in the exam and you're seeing the good response as getting the certificate, well, you might be tempted to cheat because... Uh, that behaviour gets you the certificate much more effectively. Hmm. And you're not seeing the learning as the important aspect. Yeah, the, the learning hasn't become the object. The learning, learning hasn't, hasn't become what you're trying that, to that's do. That's not the reward. Yeah. The, the what reward you're trying to become... do is get the reward. Yeah. And if you can get a machine to do the reward, if you can get somebody else to do the work, but you still get the reward, then that's that's a good option. Mm. So you've got to be aware of those those negative aspects of it. Oh, such an interesting one to have. Oh, just coming off the back of the games-based learning one, and the gamification mm. one, it's like, ooh, mm, so spicy. Oh, I love it. Thinking now of like a rat in a maze and like, oh, I'm, yeah, as far as the rat's concerned, he's just after the cheese. Yeah. Like, and it's not like he's going to be doing lots of mazes and come out the other end being like, really good at mazes now he's just gonna be like bloody hell that was a long walk for some cheese yeah. and like and he works out halfway around he could just run across the top of it um, have you seen that youtube video where somebody is putting um plastic shapes into a shape sorter yes i love it yeah. yes oh, it's the u it's the um the ui design one isn't it it's like yes. a ux designer watching a person put the triangle everything goes into the square hole yes and they're so, just they're crying. So they, they, they've got a triangular <laughs> hole and they've got a cylindrical a round hole and they've got a square hole and they've got a star hole and each shape is supposed to go into the correct hole but in fact they all go into square holes so 
the person who's putting them in just puts them all in the square. And, and it's the video, it's the picture, the, the side by side video of the person who designed it, just kind of like breaking down and crying yeah, exactly. because they're so upset. <laughs> that's that's a great example, yeah. Because what you're, yeah, if we extrapolate that met- metaphor forward, extrapolate, if we pull that metaphor forward, we go. The objective is to make a toy so that people can associate shapes with space and can kind of correctly slot them into the other. But if your objective is just to get shape, but if your reward is just for getting all your shapes into the bucket, yeah, you just do it the easiest way possible. You do it the easiest way, and possible if you, and you found that the one hole works, you just keep trying that hole. Yeah, and you don't learn at all what you expected to learn. Though the UX designer does learn something. Yeah, well, yes, not the person who wants to. Well, they, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so uh, we've explained what Pokemon is and what Pokemon Go is within Pokemon. Uh, And we've also given you the rundown, and I now know a lot more about behaviourism. Let's bring them together again as we answer the question in part two of our show. Part two, the answer. Okay, so back to our question. How does behaviourism help players catch them all in Pokemon Go? Rebecca. So if we're going to catch a Pokemon... Um, we need to know things about that Pokemon. Um, And if we're going to battle with that Pokemon, we certainly need to know things about that Pokemon. So we might have the objective of catching them all, or we might have the objective of winning the league. But in either case, we need to know things like what Pokemon are out there, uh, where are those Pokemon likely to be found, how would we get to those Pokemon. So, for example, some Pokemon... Uh, you can only find in certain bits of the world. There's European Pokemon, there's there's Pacific Island Pokemon, there's there's American Pokemon. So you've either got to go to that bit of the world or you've got to find a friend who's in that been to that part of the world. There's Pokemon that evolve from other Pokemon. There's Pokemon that evolve when you've done specific tasks. So you've got to know all those things. And the more you know about the Pokemon, the more likely you are to be able to play the game successfully. And the game is prompting you to learn all this information. And it's really prompting you to do this in in quite behaviourist ways. So um, if I catch um, the right type of Pokemon, I will get a reward um, because I'll fill up my Pokédex, which is the list of Pokemon I'm collecting. And also I've got something else which I can put in for battle. I've got more options. Or if, um, if I want negative reinforcement... I catch the right type and that's been a task that I've been assigned. So that task is now done. A task is removed from me. So in both both those cases, I'm reinforced. Also, removing a task is negative reinforcement. Well, so that I, I would say so because you're taking away something you don't want to do. You don't want to have a lot of tasks. So if task goes away. I never considered that. But in my head, the positive and negative had always been carrot and stick. Mm. I suppose that's so, carrot and taking the stick away. Yeah, so there's you can, there's two things you can do with both those things. Mm. You can give somebody the carrot or you can take the carrot away. Ah. You can hit somebody with the stick or you can take the stick away. So there's positive and negative reinforcement and there's positive and negative punishment. I'm learning so much. But trying to get those right in your head without writing it all down, doing a little diagram is, is actually quite tricky. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just always associate it with carrots and sticks and then yes. layer it up from there, I think. Indeed, indeed. So also, if I go into battle and I select the wrong one to fight, then I lose. So that's a negative consequence. I don't want to lose a fight. So I am given a punishment in that I lose. Or on the other hand, um, what might happen is my Pokemon faints and therefore, I've got to give up some of the things that I've collected. I've got to give up. I've got to get some potions. I've got to get a revive. I've got to um, spend those making my Pokemon wake up and uh, battle again. Hmm. So all those things are sort of pushing me towards a plan of action. And that plan of action involves me learning more and more about these Pokemon because the more I know about the Pokemon the more positives I can get, the more negatives I can avoid. I think that's where we loop back to gamification because one of the aspects of gamification is that games can be very behaviourist. Games are trying to teach you things. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of work on how people learn computer games. Hmm. They very rarely learn computer games by reading all the rules. They usually just learn it by going in and having a go. And 
you know, negative happens, things happen to them if they do the wrong things. Good things happen to them if they do the right yeah. things. So gamification games are very behaviorist. There's, there's a lot of links up there. Now, I'm not saying everything about what you learn in a game is behaviorist, because I think what we found out from Pedagodzilla is, is that all these things link up. They've all got advantages. They've all got disadvantages. But if you pick away not very much at a game, you do find behaviorism hmm. quite solidly embedded there. Well, particularly, I mean, so behaviorism has, I mean, if we connect behaviorism again to gamification, gamification um, has its roots in marketing or sort of the gamification as a concept has its roots in marketing where it's giving people, again, desired responses from people mm. given a particular stimulus. Um, basically, you know, if we present people with this, we would like to encourage them to buy something or something mm. like that. And uh, Pokemon Go actually, as a, as you've mentioned earlier, has made 900 million squillion trillion pounds because mm. the entire system is ultimately geared towards wanting you to drop a pound here and there to get some currency within the game in order to get even better at getting those positive things. So it gives you a lot of positive reinforcement yeah. to... And actually, even if you don't physically put the money in, you put the time in, which enriches the game, which encourages other people to put the money in. Yeah, which is... Um, there's a concept, there's some great YouTube videos, one of which I like uh, link to, which is about uh, games, microtransactions and whales, where it turns out that almost any free-to-play game, if you think you're getting away with it by not actually putting any money into a free-to-play game... Boy, are you not, because you're there to make the experience great for the 0.5% the yeah. of maniacs who will dump thousands of dollars into these things, which just as a video was grimly fascinating. Yeah, because you're putting time in. So, And if you think about time as money and mm. you think about if instead of playing Pokemon Go for three hours today, I did three hours of paid work... <laughs> <laughs> just to pick an example out of the air purely at random totally hypothetical scenario if anybody totally. from the open university is listening <laughs> totally hypothetical yeah indeed <laughs> that's so interesting though yeah yeah I, I i agree with all of the above yes nods uh yeah so uh with the question summarily answered let's move on to the next part of the show where we talk about tips for your own practice part three practical tips Okay, so uh, tips for your own practice. Um, Rebecca, do you want to go first? Uh, well, there's the one about immediate feedback. I, I think quite often in classes, uh, we get people to do exercises, uh, we get them to submit them, they get the feedback a long time later. So you don't get the reaction, you don't get the pleasurable reaction to, I have done this and this good thing happens, or negatively, I've done this and then a bad thing happens. They're split up. So we should think about trying to put those more closely together, I think. Hmm. There's another thing about using encouragement to uh, encourage good learning practices. Uh, so, for example, if you don't want people to cram for an exam at the end of term, you want them to go back over things uh, all the way through the term, then you can give them some positive reinforcement about doing that so that they that this is a good behaviour, this is the behaviour we want. And you can also build routines into a classroom. Things like when the learners first come into the classroom, what do they do? Do they come in, they mill around, they have a chat to all their mates mm. and wait for somebody to tell them? Or do they know that when they come into the classroom, they sit down, they pick up a book, you know, whatever you'd like them to be doing. Yeah, and how are you positively reinforcing that? Are you getting it so that when it does happen, you come in and you go, oh, well done everybody for doing that and good on you. Mm. And setting that initial expectation, See, that's really it's such an interesting thought. I really like that because mm. I suppose it's one of those one of those things where it's such an easy step to forget. Yes, it's it's such a this is I mean transparent pedagogy again. Having a kind of a clear mapping of your own pedagogic practice and approach, you could be transparent with that with your students as well. There's no need to hide it from them. No, particularly I suppose actually as you get into HE, where you know you may be using kind of behavioristic approaches less, but you probably will still have them built in in places. You know, at the very least in your assessment structure. Yes. Um, so you're actually making that link clear and visible to students enables them to more critically engage with the education that's in front of them. Yeah. Um, and hopefully they feel more kind of like connected to it. And also, as, as we mentioned before, thinking about when this is going wrong. So if the students 
don't see the learning as the process to getting the certificate, but they see just giving in the right answer, however they've got it, mm. as you, you've got to pick up on that and say, no, I'm not positively reinforcing somebody who's cheating. Mm. Uh, how do I avoid doing that? Oh, that's so interesting. So I suppose the part of that, I thinking again from like an assessment perspective, I'm conscious that everybody's very assessment focused a lot of the time, particularly, you know, mm. particularly university will remain unnamed, um, more open than some, where there's a lot of drive towards, okay, so for the assessment, for the EMA, yeah. which I suppose can make the end point and the reward feel very much like it's that certificate at the end. Yeah. And what you really need to be reinforcing is you will be able to, you will have the understanding. It's going back to the learning outcomes. It's going back to the learning this outcome. is, You will have the power to, um, you know, understand this, I don't know, understand how to make tungsten rod and put it in orbit. And you'll have a bit of paper to prove that. But the important thing is to know how to smite your enemies from orbit. Yes. And that's the bit. Exactly. And that's the real yeah. takeaway. Yeah. So actually, yeah, using the using the carrot and stick system correctly and connecting it to the right bits of things that you're trying to positively enforce seems like such a critical part of that yeah indeed and i think for me my practical tip would be um i know on the podcast we've probably given behaviorism an, uh, accidentally kind of bum rap from time to time so it's just like oh blah how dreadfully behavioristic in fact i think going back as far as barack rosen our episode on barack rosen shines ten principles of instruction which are very rooted in kind of, you know, basic classroom stuff uh, in a positive way, a very positive way, because it's basic classroom stuff, not higher education. So, yeah, I think um, maybe being less snooty on your podcasts about behaviorism and actually recognizing the hidden behaviorism embedded into things is really important. And again, being transparent about that. Weirdly, I'm going to look out for it more now. And it's this has changed the context of it in my head, because it's not just if I say behavior, you say ism, behavior, ism, behavior, ism. Mm-hmm. It's like, cool. And now you know a great song. <laughs> like, you know, and then that's the uh, that's the reward at the end of that is being able to to sing that cool, very short, very bad song. Let's see if I can put some music underneath it in the final edit. <laughs> cool. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I think we've covered everything. Anything else you want to? I think we've covered everything. Yeah, I need to go off and play Pokemon Go now. Yeah, I need to. Um, I need to go to a team meeting in a minute. So uh, I'll wrap us up then. Thank you again, Rebecca, for joining us, um, and thank you very much to you for listening. You can follow us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also follow us and get in touch via Twitter, where I'm at pedagodzilla and I'm at Rebecca F. But the first E in Rebecca is a three. There'll be a there'll be a link in the show notes as well if that's Probably if that's too hard to conceptualise. <laughs> um, we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, then why not um, put it on a frisbee? Uh, go out to sea and just kind of throw it as hard as you can. Perhaps it'll land on a container ship and it'll go to far and distant lands. Uh, and some dock worker many miles away will will pick it up, um, look at the URL that you've hopefully etched into it, and go, ah, that's nice and go home and stick it in his computer and you'll learn it about pedagogy. Anyway, we love you lots and we'll speak to you next time on Pedagodzilla. Goodbye now. Bye. Brilliant. Oh, I should have been...